My father and mother, Wallace and Bobby Edwards, are also here tonight. You taught me the values that I carry in my heart. Faith, family, responsibility, opportunity for everybody. You taught me that there's dignity and honor in a hard day's work. You taught me to always look out for our neighbors, to never look down on anybody, and treat everybody with respect. Those are the values that John Kerry and I believe in, and nothing makes me prouder than standing with him in this campaign. I am so humbled to be your candidate for Vice President of the United States. What we believe, what John Kerry and I believe, is that we should never look down on anybody. We ought to lift people up. We don't believe in tearing people apart. We believe in bringing them together. What we believe, what I believe, is that the family you're born into and the color of your skin in our America should never control your destiny. Join us in this cause. Let's make America stronger at home and more respected in the world. Let's ensure that once again, in our one America, our one America, tomorrow will always be better than today. Thank you, God bless you, and God bless the United States of America. Thank you. Welcome back to For the Defense. I'm David Oscar Marcus, and you were just listening to one of the biggest and brightest political figures back in the early 2000s, John Edwards. He was the vice presidential nominee with John Kerry running for president against incumbent George Bush. They lost that year, but John Edwards' star was very bright. He ran again for president in 2008 against Obama and Clinton, but scandal was nipping at his heels. He was reportedly having an affair with Real Hunter while his wife was dying of cancer. And he asked his campaign aide, Andrew Young, his right-hand man and friend, to say that he was the one having the affair. He was the one who uh, was the father of Hunter's unborn baby. And initially, Andrew Young did just that. Eventually, he became the lead cooperating witness against John Edwards in his federal trial. And John Edwards turned to the great Abby Lowell, one of the wonderful white-collar criminal defense lawyers in the country. Abby has represented some of the biggest political figures of our time. But this case wasn't just politics. It was scandal. Front page of the National Enquirer every week. And it was a big question about whether this was going to be the type of federal trial that convicted John Edwards because he was a bad person who cheated on his wife, or whether Abby Lowell could bring this case back to whether there were federal campaign election law violations. Was he a bad guy or was he a federal criminal? Abby Lowell will discuss how he defended John Edwards, that rising political star who crashed because of the scandal in For the Defense, next. Welcome to For the Defense. I'm David Marcus, and I'm here with Abby Lowell, who is widely known as the white-collar defense lawyer to see. He's represented Senator Menendez, Gary Condit, Governor Jim Gibbons, Jack Abramoff. And the case we're going to discuss today, John Edwards, was 
sort of the white collar trial of the early uh, 2000s. It was 2011, wasn't it, Abby? Yes, I think that's right. So welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, let's see where we can take this. <laughs> well, John Edwards at the time was the rising star of the Democratic Party. He was the vice presidential candidate and presidential candidate. And it all sort of came crashing down because of this affair. And it was a story that you know, it was covered by the tabloids, the National Enquirer, and so on. I'm, I'm not sure if this is a white-collar federal crime or if this is a tabloid story or both. Well, I think it turned into a white-collar crime for reasons that ultimately played itself out for his both acquittal and hung jury. And that is, for reasons that we will talk about, the federal prosecutors involved starting with the local U.S. Attorney's Office, the U.S. Attorney of which was adverse to him politically, and then the Maine Justice Department, decided to create a new theory of criminal prosecution that had never, ever been done before, and basically one that the Federal Election Commission disagreed with, which was that if a private person gives a candidate or a candidate's friends or family money for a purpose while that candidate is running, that can be a campaign contribution, even though it's not the normal for you know ads or bumper stickers or staff. And so the theory was that by friends helping Senator Edwards trying to hide his affair and providing for the wherewithal of the woman that he was involved with, that that in effect became a campaign contribution. And because it was over the minimum, the maximum limit, then it was an illegal campaign contribution. And the charge was that he engendered that to happen, that it was his scheme and his friends who were part of it did it at his behest. So it may have started as what should have been a political wait. How can we vote for somebody like that? Or how can we tolerate that behavior but it became the proverbial don't make a federal case out of it for the reason I just said. And they did. And, and so usually in these federal white collar cases, you know, we're contacted before the person is charged during an investigation. Is that what happened here? You get contacted beforehand? Um, in, in this case, it's not atypical for what you probably and many others get. Um, Senator Edwards had a group of attorneys, really terrific, wonderful attorneys, both in North Carolina and Washington working during the investigative stage to try to prevent this theory from being pursued or any charge. And as it got closer to the point where it looked like it was, he brought me on for purposes of adding to that great team, but also to become the trial lawyer should the events occur, which they ended up happening. So that's not atypical. I am often brought in right about that moment to try to take the last stab at preventing a case and then becoming trial lawyer of a case is brought. So I imagine the, that before you're brought in, there's an enormous amount of pressure on Senator Edwards to plead so that, you know, they probably offer no jail time or little to no jail time and not go to trial. And and there's so few trials these days because of that enormous pressure before a trial begins. His his daughter's going to have to see all of this. The public's going to have to see a, a public trial. So it takes a lot of courage to to fight the case, bring on a trial lawyer and go to go to a trial. True. I mean, whether you are a high profile defendant or somebody not so, the possibility of having to go to trial is daunting no matter what. Daunting in terms of publicity, in terms of reputation, in terms of resources, 
in terms of risk, of course. Um, as I recall it, and I don't know that this was ever confirmed, this wasn't my part, this was right before I got involved. The newspapers reported that a deal that was offered was very strange. The deal, as I recall it, was he could plead to a felony and have no jail and or plead to misdemeanor misdemeanors if there was jail. And as you know, David, that's usually the opposite. Right. Um, a felony was the death penalty for him, notwithstanding even the chance of jail, because, I mean, he was a lawyer. This was going to be his profession after this. He certainly wasn't going to be a viable candidate for office again. And so he would have clearly been disbarred and he wasn't willing to end the rest of his political, let alone his legal career. At the time, he still had young children. He still needed to make a living. So that was the dichotomy, as I recall it. And it did take courage. And I'll, you know, we'll get to this, I guess, in a minute. But it took courage, too, because the problem was everybody in America really disapproved his conduct, which was completely disapprovable. And the fear was nobody would differentiate that from the legal charge. And so it was a little bit of a challenge for him and the lawyers to figure out a way to get those two separated. And let me pause there because we, we are going to get to that in a second. You mentioned that Edwards was a trial lawyer. You're, of course, a trial lawyer. Um, how, how is it to have a client who's a trial lawyer? I find those to be the most difficult clients. So it, it, I have a fun story to tell to answer your question in part. Uh, prior to the trial, I was at an event in Washington, D.C., and at the event were a number of judges, including then Circuit Court Judge Santel from North Carolina and Paul Friedman from the District of Columbia. The three of us were at some point together, and Paul um, introduced me to Judge Santel. I don't think he needed to, but he didn't know that I had known the judge, and said, you know, you know, Abby is going to be um, Senator Edwards' trial lawyer, and I think the conversation came up and the question was, who was going to be local counsel? Mm -hmm. And uh, Judge Friedman said to Judge Santel, you know, who do you think is the best trial lawyer for being in North Carolina? And Judge Santel looked at me and said, that's easy, John Edwards. <laughs> um, so that <laughs> that's was great. kind of a fun story. Um, it was very interesting. Um, here is something that John Edwards would allow me to say. First of all, um, he, as a trial lawyer, and not just a trial lawyer, but also remember a very, very accomplished public speaker and public figure and public, you know, office holder, basically had, as he likes to let me say, every moment of my representation, he had between 25 and 30 ideas a day, and during trial, maybe twice as many, and one or two of them were okay. <laughs> I, I love it. At, at the end of the trial, when we were sitting on his porch, rocking on a chair after it was all over, you know, he looked at me and his very best friend, David Kirby, with whom he's in practice now. And he said something that I think will also help explain your question. He said, you know, Abby, what you do for a living and what I do for a living are two different professions. So Being true. a plaintiff's lawyer and a defense lawyer in criminal context. And, and he appreciated that. But I have to say, having a smart, articulate, legally trained client was, was challenging, but it actually was not, it was helpful. 
because we could soundboard each other. And that was really a good thing to do. And I think he, you know, he learned in the process and getting his insight. But it also showed something that we also know, you know, his lack of objectivity about his own situation was palpable. And so it's good to remind ourselves that. You know, his daughter, I, I noted from reviewing the case, is also a lawyer and yes. sat through the entire trial. Um, that must have been such a such an interesting dynamic, tough for her as a family member, but then her wanting to help as a as a lawyer. How, how did that all work out? Just as you said, I mean, Kate Edwards is, again, an incredibly smart, talented person, lawyer, Um in all the things that she's ever done. So again, it was another smart brain and voice in the room. Sometimes, you know, there could be too many of those, but in this case, I think there wasn't too many, but there was a lot. Um, And for sure, this must have been a very, it was a very difficult moment for all the obvious reasons. I mean, her being the daughter of both of the parents, the situation with her mom and and her dad, the the vilification of her dad must be painful, um, as it always is. No matter what our public officials do and say, present public officials in Washington, D.C. included, it is a dynamic when family members have to be involved and come to their support. And so in this case, Kate was very helpful in terms of what she could add, but it must have been incredibly difficult for her. And you could see that toll on her during both the course of the trial and then the release when it was all over. Of course. And, you know, I was looking Edwards, I guess, wrote a book called Four Trials about his career as a trial lawyer. And one, it was interesting. One of the things he, he talks about the importance of juries and how he relies on juries. And he says they take in every moment, fact, word, hesitation and glance. And I, I, it's so true when he writes that. And I was thinking about having his daughter sitting there every day, uh, just of course, to support, but the jury sees that as well. Must been it must have been a big and important thing for the defense just to have her there as to support him. That's true, and uh, John's mom and dad were there pretty much the ah. entire time as well, and certainly they would have recognized that that's who that was. Um, Edwards and I and others got to speak to the jurors after the trial. I think I spoke to six or seven of them um, in person or otherwise uh, over the next days and weeks. Mm-hmm. Some of them appeared on national television. Um, when the verdict was rendered and the case was dismissed that day, uh, various media outlets had already been waiting for these jurors in the parking lot. And some of them were with on private jets to go to the Today Show or wherever they went oh, wow. the next day. It was very bizarre. So I got to speak to them. And it's interesting. I have to tell you, of all the things they said, I think one or two may have commented that it was nice to see that his family supported him in his moments of need, but it wasn't a big influence in their decisions, at least as they articulated it. And as to Senator Edwards' comments in his own book, yes. Again, another anecdote that he would allow me to say. um, In one of the days, the judge in the case had this um, practice, whereas during their deliberations, she required them to come into the courtroom at the end of every day, as opposed to just being dismissed. So we'd be at table, prosecutors at table, they'd be in the box, they'd come into the box, and then they would leave. And often they would leave by basically the exit was in front of us, so they'd have to walk past us. And you know this, David, you know, especially at this high tense moment in a trial proceeding, jurors aren't making much 
eye contact with right. you. I mean, maybe sometimes they do, but then we lawyers and our clients go bananas because we're looking <laughs> yeah. for every clue, right? We're looking to see whether they will make eye contact. If they make eye contact, are they smiling? Are they frowning, et cetera? And I remember one day, you know, we went back to our little room after this and the senator said, oh my gosh, we're in trouble. And I said, what would make you think that? I mean, there's no data point here. Say, well, none of them would make eye contact with me. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard, okay. right? I would say, well, first of all, I mean, there was like 30 members of the media in the back. You know, the judges there presiding, they wanted to get out of the courtroom <laughs> yeah. that day, as they did in every. If you're going to interpret that into a bad sign, then I think you could also decide that today they decided more of them wanted, you know, the turkey sandwich versus the tuna. <laughs> right. And that's a bad sign, too. <laughs> right. You know, one of the things that's always bothered me about our practice, the federal criminal practice, is that there's no motions for summary judgment. There's no depositions. There's no way to get these cases sort of looked at seriously by judges pre-trial. I know you filed a bunch of pre-trial motions because this case didn't really seem like a federal crime. And of course, the judge dismisses them as as most judges do what what can we do to is there a way to remedy that because it, it really it, it seems that our practice is quite unfair in that regard i agree with you it is an interesting aspect of the dichotomy between civil and criminal cases that there is motions there are motions both on the pleadings which you can have an analogy for in criminal cases that it doesn't state a, a failure to state a claim just like in civil cases doesn't state a crime but that middle ground where when the discovery is seen that there's not evidence for what the government says is not available as a pretrial motion for summary judgment. Right. And I think the reason is, well, I mean, I know the reason. The reason is the propriety and emphasis we give the grand jury. The it's absurd. Is, is that if a grand jury came to the conclusion of probable cause, then that triggers enough to get you to trial and in between would basically undermine the sanctity of the grand jury. The problem, as you know, and I know, and a lot of people know, is that the grand jury doesn't play that role in our society if it ever did. And, you know, to use the phrase, it's a rubber stamp, may be overused, and it may not quite be right, but it's closer to being right than it's not right. So the presumption of regularity we give the process is overstated and therefore, maybe it should be revisited that there should be a way out. There is in the Edwards case and other cases I've done and that you've done slightly something that's possible when there is a stretch of the law, as it was in Edward. We did make a motion and I'm making one in a case now in Puerto Rico where a prosecutor's theory is the first time that they're making that theory. Mm -hmm. And then that implicates the due process clauses notice requirement that people know that their conduct is illegal before they are charged with doing it. But you're right, there's a gap. If I were the king of the world um, and I could change the federal rules of criminal procedure, I'd find something that didn't allow there to be two trials, if you will, you know, a mini trial before the trial, but something that allowed an attack prior to the government resting where you can move for, you know, judgment of acquittal based on a failure of proof. And that is a gap I wouldn't mind seeing some solutions for. So you're headed into trial. You have um, John Edwards, who knows this part of North Carolina probably better than anyone has tried more cases there. Um, what kind of jurors are you looking for? And do you have jury consultants or is John Edwards your jury consultant? 
Um, a combination of using the uh, my two, you know, the two lawyers that we had that were great lawyers there um, locally. Of course, John himself, his family. There were a lot of cooks. And as yeah. to a formal jury consultant at that point, not in the courtroom. We had, as you needed to have, a very thorough written questionnaire in advance. And the judge, Judge Eagles, allowed very individualized voir dire um, as she had to, because there were questions, David, that talked about people's own experiences with marital infidelity, mm. with issues that were going to come up in the case. And they had to um, respond candidly. And there was an area, this is a part of the country where there's strong religious feelings, et cetera. So we had a lot of interaction and as to, but not, if you will, the, what is the TV show on uh, CBS bull kind of um, yeah, right, person, right. right? Yeah. Not that, but we had a lot of eyes and ears in the courtroom and beforehand. And then as to what kind of juror, I think that there was no particular set of characteristics that one might identify other than finding people that were not dogmatically religious, people who did not put partisan politics in their answers just to, for example, if somebody had been a lifelong um, activist in all Republican races, including those against, you know, the senator, that's easy. Yeah. But here's something that you also should know to explain the challenge of this particular kind of case, and you've had them. I think it was one of the newspapers in North Carolina, but I can't remember which one now. Might have been The Observer, who did a poll of John prior to the trial, a couple of weeks before. And there were two results that were daunting. Um, one was in the list of disliked people in the United States, he was in the top five, oh. including people who at that time were accused of terrorism. Oh. And the second thing was when asked whether he was guilty or innocent, um, 70 percent of the poll people said he was guilty, even though, again, they would have had no idea what he was charged with. So that was the challenge. So you had to basically accept the fact that strongly partisan Democrats were going to be knocked out by the prosecution. We would try to find a way to knock out people that were the similar on the other side, plus moralistic, plus um, very dogmatically religious and try to find people in the middle. I mean, as to whether older people or younger people, that would reflect stereotypes, which I have found often doesn't ever really work. You know, people would say, you know, don't have an older white woman who's likely to be moralistic. I can tell you that there were young people of color that were equally so. So you couldn't do it based on those broad stereotypes. You know, it's funny because you mentioned how hated Senator Edwards was going in. Um, and typically, you know, prosecutors are sort of known as just coming out saying, here's what he's charged with, here are the elements, and sort of laying out the evidence very straight. But here they went over the top in their opening and throughout trial with, with the sort of scandalous aspect of the case. And it was the defense in opening who was trying to keep it straight as to the campaign finance laws. I found that a very interesting, it usually doesn't play out that way. Again, it reflects what made this case unique from the investigative charging and trial decision. And and look, I don't think what we put together as a defense was rocket science in the sense of what needed to be done. I hope people will think that it was thoughtful and that I did a good job with what we decided. But 
it was clear that my theme was going to be, as you saw, from the moment of jury selection to the opening, to the questioning of witnesses, to the closing, to make them get in their brain the phrase I used over and over again, the difference between a sin and a crime. And contrary, you're right, <laughs> I, I'm thinking of the speech in Julius Caesar where, you know, after Caesar is killed and you have Anthony explaining that he was an honorable man and yet he was being tongue in cheek, et cetera, that in order to rabble rouse the crowd, um, it was the prosecutor saying, now, look, we're not going to point out that this was the man who cheated on his wife, why she was sick. And, you know, he, this was an outrageous thing. We're not going. This is about the offense. <laughs> yeah. and, and so, you know. Whenever, what's the phrase? Whenever somebody says it's not about the money, it's about the money. When everybody, yeah. so their theory was at least to blur that line. And in a way, if you believed that what he did was a crime, and I, and I have to accept that they did, then I guess they would say, look, you can't draw the distinction that between the offense and his conduct is such a bright line as I wanted it to be. But having said that, you're right. We needed to separate the two and they needed to have it a little blurry. We'll be right back on For the Defense next. So speaking of blurred lines, I have to tell the story about a trial I did once. It was about a real estate transaction and the government alleged real estate fraud. But the defendants, there were a group of five of them, were either mafia members, a made man, or some of his associates. And so the government was trying very, very hard to get in evidence that these were mobsters, even though that really had nothing to do with the real estate transaction itself. The government knew that if it got that evidence in, the jury would be much more likely to convict a bunch of mobsters doing a real estate deal than just a bunch of regular old people. And so the judge did allow a video from the 1970s to come into evidence of the lead defendant at the Ravenite Social Club with John Gotti. Really shouldn't have come in. It had nothing to do with the case. But as many defense lawyers know, judges like to allow in what's called other bad act evidence. And this came into evidence. And we saw the lead defendant, who was a mafia member, wearing this white jacket, this white sports coat. And I leaned over and said to him, Vinny, I love the jacket, great jacket. And he laughed. The next morning he comes to trial and he's wearing the white jacket. And I said, Vinny, what are you doing? Why are you wearing that jacket? He said, I thought you liked it, kid. And so those lines got blurred pretty quickly because the jury saw Vinny in that white coat that he was wearing 30 years before at the Ravenite Social Club. Let's get back to the blurred lines in this case with Abby Lowell and John Edwards. One of the places where I think it got most blurred is when they call Andrew Young. So, so that everybody knows, Young is Edwards' most trusted advisor. He's the guy uh, Edwards supposedly asked to you know, help cover up everything, to say that he was involved with Rael Hunter, that he's the father of the child. And what makes a witness like this so hard to cross-examine is that Edwards trusted him for so long. They were best friends 
for 10 years, to me, those are the toughest witnesses. It's easy to, to go after a, a snitch, a, a typical snitch in a drug case, let's say. But in this case, where they're calling the best friend, that's the toughest witness. It is a tough witness, generally speaking, and you're right. And the advantage that we had was that it turns out that the evidence showed the testimony and cross and outside the courtroom events showed that in a certain way, it wasn't hard to portray Andrew Young as somebody who had basically used John Edwards as much as people accused John Edwards of using Andrew Young. Mm-hmm. And that while he was a close confidant, remember, he was you know both younger and an aide. He wasn't his best friend in terms of being a contemporary. He basically had betrayed that trust, both in terms of when he was working for him, not, not in the midst of the scandal, as well as during the scandal. I mean, for example... One of the facts that was able to be revealed was, you know, just how much of Andrew Young's solicitations of funds and support he basically did for his own purposes and to divert those funds for his use and not at all to help John Edwards cover up the affair or take care of Riel Hunter at, at large proportions, David. I mean, it was like hundreds of thousands of dollars. And do, do you get all this information from your own investigation or do you, or is it turned over as Brady material from the prosecution or how, how do you get, there was so much impeachment of the guy, the cross went on for how long, a day? Uh, I think you may be one of the longest I've ever done. It was probably over two days. Yeah. Let me, let me stop there to say that one of the themes that I thought that we did well, and when I say we, by the way, I'm not talking about the royal we, is that I believed that if I could show that Andrew Young would lie about insignificant things, then when it came to the big issues about a conversation he had with Edwards or where he was or what Edwards said about whether he thought election laws were implicated, the important issues, if we could show that he padded his resume, that he took uh, credit for things that weren't his, that he would double cross fellow campaign workers on matters that did not account to anything, then it then set up my ability to show that, therefore, how could he be trusted on the most important issues in the case? So that needed some time to play out. Right. Um, And I think the judge got impatient at some point because, you know, one doesn't have really the best metronome, whether you've gone too far or not. Having said that, that was important. So, Where you get that information from in general is mostly, of course, the government's own discovery of you do your own investigation. And we have that ability here. But in this case, we also had something else. We had Andrew Young having decided that this was going to be he wrote a book. He did 11 interviews. Great. He went on shows. He became, you know, he wanted this was his moment of fame. He provided more information than I could possibly use. Can you imagine, by the way, having the ability to both read somebody's book on events, see, get transcripts of their interviews on television and radio shows um, as part of what you get to compare to what he said in a grand jury or what he said in an interview or what he says in trial? I mean, it was the proverbial ant in a picnic basket, (laughs) meaning, you know, so much to do, so little time. Right. It, it seems like it. And he got immunity, right? I mean, he wasn't prosecuted for all this. That's that's right. And, and, you know, I think another phenomenon you might have explored with all your other 
guessed in your own practice, is the phenomenon by which when a government cooperator takes the stand and is shown to basically lie to the jury, what does the government do about that? And very often, nothing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the phenomenon. So, you know, I think he lied to the prosecutors in the run-up to the case. I think we were able to show that his direct testimony included, at best, things which were exaggerated. Um, you know, in a certain way, I don't know if there is accountability for that, although certainly when we did speak to the jurors, it was interesting. I mean, a number of them basically said, we decided to evaluate the case without any of his testimony, period. Oh, interesting. And then some said, you know, we held against the government that he was their star witness. It, did the government need to call him to make the case or, or should they have just left him off the stand entirely? I think they needed to have him say some things. I think the problem is once they put him on the stand for almost anything, right. it opened the door for everything. Right. So it was the dilemma. And that goes back to the point of why did they bring the case? Right. As so exactly. If you knew your case, A, was based on a theory of prosecution that heretofore had not been done. And second, at least had the elements of being accused to be a political prosecution. And third, you needed to base that prosecution on somebody that was as vulnerable as he was, Andrew Young was. Then as a prosecutor, you step back and go, you know what? Let the FEC take care of this at a different standard. Let the people take care of this in terms of banishing him from politics. It's not a federal criminal case, but the momentum for that prevented that from happening. So they call they call Young, but they don't call Riel Hunter, which I thought was fascinating. And then she ends up on your witness list and you don't call her either. Um, were you surprised that they didn't call her? No, I think we were both playing witness chicken yeah. in a certain way. <laughs> yeah. um, I think both of us realized that might be some value in it and there might be some risk. And I guess First of all, we put her on our witness list because it was possible, right? And depending on how the case develops, you know, David, that you know, you can make all these plans for the way the trial is going to go. And what is it that some great fighter, who's the fighter that said you can make all the plans you want until you're punched in the jaw? Tyson. Right. <laughs> Mike Tyson. Uh, uh, right. So, you know, you, you make sure that you have all that possible. Um, she was not going to be a friendly witness for the government. I mean, she thought this was an outrage that this case was being brought. She was articulate. Um, she certainly would have deflated the notion that she was going to run to the press and reveal the relationship as why there was a motive for him to cover it up during the campaign. So basically, arguing that, as the prosecution did, was better than calling her and having us be able to say, you heard from her and you should believe her because why would right. you? So right. that was that. In our case, there was not much I we needed her to say after all is said and done. I mean, she certainly wouldn't have said that Edwards told Andrew Young to claim he was the father. She would have not known anything about conversations Edwards had with his two friends that provided the funds for her. She would have not been able to opine uh, other than what I said as to what her motive was. And so... We could make those points without it. We certainly gave it thought because we did put on a case just as, you know, we had to consider whether we put the senator on. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. I just want to pause for one second about 
the press in the case was overwhelming. I mean, there was tons of press leading up to the trial, obviously, because of the sort of scandal nature of the case and during the trial. So I was just wondering what you thought. I ask everybody this about whether we should have cameras in the courtroom to cover these cases or not. Yes. So I think it's kind of an interesting phenomenon among defense attorneys, I think. I am a big, big fan of cameras in the courtroom on every appellate argument that exists. And still in the specter of the O.J. Simpson case and Judge Ito in the courtroom and the participants, still at least more than 60 percent skeptical about cameras in the courtroom in a criminal case. I think it does cause trial participants to play beyond the jury. I think one could contain it. The problem is I think there are some cases where it can't be contained, and I think Edwards would be a good example. And then so how do you have one rule for that and another rule for another? You could. You could give it to the judge's discretion in a case to decide. Um, I certainly remember the court TV days where so many trial, you know, uh, right. state cases. And that can be done. I mean, I, I also think you know, an unobtrusive camera in the you know corner of the courtroom that isn't panning and it's always there, it could become invisible and people wouldn't remember. The problem really then becomes this. We already live in an age where a judge's instruction to a jury not to read the paper, not to go online, not to go onto the internet is strained at best. Right. Because we know the secret that either they still do it often or the people in their household do and tell them. That's right. Can you imagine the temptation for a juror who knows that there's going to be video at 6 and 11 of what they saw during the day to go revisit it, see it. That's a big, big risk as well. Tough. So between the risk of the pressure on jurors and the opportunity for mischief, um, as I said, uh, I'm still willing to reconsider every six months. But right now, I still say that the advantages outweigh the disadvantages. So let's get back to the defense case. You're representing somebody who you said is a wonderful speaker, obviously very smart, great trial lawyer. It must have been tough to keep him off the stand. I imagine he wanted to testify. So again, I, this is where we will be careful as yes. to the conversations that would be privileged. Let me say it this way. This is a man who made his entire career as a lawyer and as a public official and as a candidate by his ability to persuade, to talk, to convey, to influence by what he said and how he said it. Mm -hmm. So there's a strong, strong presumption that he should be somebody who would be able to, right? If, if there's any client we ever have that should be able to do it, you'd think a client like that can. As you know, however, and as anybody listening to your program and all the other guests you've had know, the adage goes something like this. Put a client on the stand and the trial becomes all about the client. Correct. Don't put the client on the stand and the trial can be about any number of other things, right? The government's actions, the star witness, uh, my performance, whatever. So if you have three or four ways to undercut a government case, then you, no matter who your client is, consider whether the advantages of that outweigh the disadvantages of making it a, you know, one pony show and no matter how much. And second of all, once he took the stand in this case, given the door that that would open in terms of his conduct, 
that line being blurred between what's a sin and what's a crime would have been more obliterated. And so that is a factor to consider as well. And the last piece is, for the same reason that he could be a great trial lawyer and give us great ideas, but can't be objective, it's almost harder to be a lawyer and be your own witness because A, you aren't objective, B, you think you're not giving evidence, you think you're making an argument and it becomes very difficult to separate the two. So there were advantages and disadvantages. And I can tell you, like you know, that right up to the moment where the judge asks if you have any other witnesses, you consider that. And at that moment, you what you all know is that we did not call him and what you can infer from that is that we believe that we had made our case through every other witness and that they would forgive him that. And by the way, when I spoke to the jurors afterwards, um, they did. They did not think he needed, They not one of them thought he needed to testify that I spoke with. It's interesting because in a case where a lot of the defense came down to what is Edwards' intent, right? Um, and, and of course the defense was he didn't have any bad intent. Typically in those cases, you almost need to call the defendant, but here you had so many witnesses sort of corroborating the theme that he wasn't doing this with bad intent. Well, he wasn't doing it with any knowledge Correct. of the election laws such that he could form a bad intent. Right. You know, we all try cases or defend people where the conduct in business, whether it be taxes, whether it be don't misrepresent to your bank when you're making a loan, you know, that's kind of obvious. So some of your uh, conduct will implicate your intent. Um, here, if you're on a brand new theory, then it is not as easy for a jury to infer intent. And I think that's what you and I are now saying. So that was one reason why you could argue a lack of intent in ways you might not be able to in a different white collar case. We're going to get to Abby Lowell's closing argument next in For the Defense. We're going to get to Abby Lowell's closing argument next. But before we do, let me go back to that mafia case I was telling you about at the last break. And see, there I go, calling it a mafia case, even though it was just an alleged real estate fraud transaction. But once that video of the Ravenite Social Club came in with Vinny in the white coat, it became all about the mafia. And we knew we were in a lot of trouble when one of the jurors sent a note to the judge asking that after they reached their verdict for the jury to be escorted to their cars because they were afraid. Now, there was no violence alleged. There was no reason for the jury to be afraid. But once they heard Gotti's name and mafia and so on, they became petrified. One of them even said afterwards that they thought they saw one of the uh, mafia guy's relatives writing down their license plate numbers. Now, that never happened. But once they heard those words, they were so scared. So the optics of a trial become so important. A real estate fraud case turned into a mafia trial. This case, Abby Lowell had to desperately try to keep it about federal campaign law and not about scandal. And you'll hear how he did that at the very beginning of his closing argument in For the Defense. Next. Abby, let me let me turn to the closing, because when I read the closing, I, I, I thought there were so many great lines. Here's here's your opening line. This is a case that should define the difference between somebody committing a wrong and somebody committing a crime. Someone committing an offense against his wife and family and committing an offense against the United States government and the difference between a sin and a felony. 
I mean, that really captures the theme. You come out with the theme right at the beginning, right? Well, I appreciate you saying it coming from you. I, I really appreciate the compliment. Um, yes, and um, that's was the theme. I told you we knew that going in. It's been my, you know, the mantra throughout. And the part that I like, although being careful, my mom had a great expression, which was don't break your arm patting yourself on the back. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was the next sentences, which, by the way, was, uh, was unplanned. It was completely spontaneous. Um, I was in the court. I was in the well of the court. I looked at the uh, witness box and there was the Bible. And then I looked at the prosecutor's desk and there was the United States Code. And so I said in words and effect, and that principle between what's a sin and what is a crime is best understood by the two books that have been in the courtroom the entire time of the trial. If you look at the witness desk, you'll see the Bible. And if you look at the prosecutors, you'll see the United States law. And ladies and gentlemen, have you noticed the two books have never been the same place? I love that. I love that, Abby. And you know, a lot of the people who have been listening are young lawyers and they email me after like, how do you become a trial lawyer? How do you, so that, that part, just seeing that and being able to do that on the spur of the moment in a case like this, I mean, are trial lawyers born? Are, do you learn how to do that? How do you, how do you get to be a great trial lawyer? <laughs> I wish I could tell you that. Cause then I'd stop having this interview. I would uh, put it in a <laughs> bottle and sell it. And yeah. I could come down to where you live and retire finally. Um, yeah. I think it's a combination of things. Look, I, we're all born with whatever that moment of DNA was that we were made into a human being. And so you start with whatever your traits are. And those traits are reinforced as you grow up. I mean, in my household, when I had a judge once ask me, where did you get your oral training, Mr. Lowell? And I said, um, at my mom's kitchen table. <laughs> right. Right. Because I mean, that's the way my growing up house was. And so you're reinforced by what people say about you growing up and um, whatnot. For whatever reason, this is sort of an embarrassing anecdote, but I was telling somebody the other day that when I was growing up and I was young and people would say, you know, you know how it is. People say, oh, you're so good at science. You should be a doctor, you know. Or they'd say, you know, I can't believe how, um, you know, diverse you are in athletic skills. You should be a football player, right? Well, for me and maybe for you, for others, people would say, you know, you're such a big mouth. You ought to be a lawyer. <laughs> right. So um, right. that was part of it. And the embarrassing anecdote was when I was young, um, we'd have these events where I would entertain my parents' friends by pretending the piano bench was a podium and basically making speeches or making arguments. Fantastic. So, I mean, so it's part of what you're born with for sure. It's part of the training you get by deciding that that's the area you want to be in, right? For me, when I decided to be a lawyer, it was always in my head. The only lawyer I knew was trial lawyer. So I wanted to do that, litigation, trials, et cetera. Um, so that's the second reason. Third is, and then you take courses or you take jobs or you intern or you watch people that right. also help add to your ability. And then fourth, all of us learn by watching what others do, i.e. you're doing this podcast, right? So we can learn from each other. But I think you have to have something to begin with, right? And I think you have to then nurture it and it be nurtured. And um, I think also the other thing is, I mean, I don't know about you, David. Well, I do know about you because I've known you for a long time. 
to be a trial lawyer, lawyer, you have to have a desire to be a performer at some level, right? I mean, you know, I, if I hadn't done this, who knows? It should have been, you know, Broadway or something. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, you have to decide that that's something you want. You, no, you of can't course. be sort of reticent. So there's that too. I, I think that makes sense if people think about all the components that go into it. So you do all this performing, you've given your closing, which is the biggest performance, and then the jury goes out and they're out for nine days. I oh could not Lord. believe nine days. You must have been dying. Oh, I mean, so again, I'm not unique. Um, waiting a jury the is worst. by far the hardest, hardest <laughs> thing I can do. And I'm not good at it. And I don't know, there must be people that are way better at it. And it takes years off of your life and you find every distraction you can. And I think at the time I did have some electronic device and played like 11,000 uh, <laughs> games of Jumbaline or something like that to try to distract you. Some people can work when the jury's out. I, oh I can't, <laughs> it's crazy. I, you know, I, did, did, I am barely able to get out of a catatonic position <laughs> out, of my, out of my bed. You know, you keep thinking that if you just concentrate and will it, the jury will hear the vibes. It <laughs> was ridiculous. True. And it was, I'm not sure if it was the longest, but it was near the longest based on the situation. And then to kind of like at the end hear that there was, you know, a, I, I, I forgot all of them, but on one of them afterwards, they said, oh, you know, we took a vote. It was like, you know, 10 to two for acquittal, but the oh. two, you know. Or, you know, you hear those, right? And that's one of the reasons the government didn't bring the case on the hung count. I was going to ask you about that. They, yeah, I, I, but I, getting back to your direct question, I mean, it was a re such a long thing. And the other thing about it that was great, not great for me, because I wasn't like this, John's parents were sanguine and stoic and confident throughout. And I would be sitting up on the second or third floor of the courthouse by myself in the quarter you know, drooling on myself or something. And they would come over and try to make me feel better. And then I would think, wow, they're making me feel better. <laughs> right. Job. I should be making them feel better. I, I swear we take these things harder than the clients and their families a lot of times. Um, but but you mentioned that, you, I mean, the jury comes back, they, they acquit on one count, they hang on some others. And Typically, in cases where there's hung juries, the government retries. You convince them not to. How do you convince them not to retry the case? Well, I mean, I think I tried to convince the superiors before the trial not to bring the case. Of right? course. And so some of the things that I had said about the case proved to be true. So now I had some credibility, I hope, that right. what we had said came out to be the case. Second of all, they gave it their best shot. I mean, yeah. they did. They had, you know, two really good trial lawyers, um, one from the U.S. Attorney's Office in North Carolina, one from the Public Integrity Section. Uh, third is the then head of the criminal division, uh, the time was Lanny Brewer, had actually come and watched the trial, as did heads of the Public Integrity Section. They saw what went down. I see. And, um, and at that point, I mean, how are they going to retry it to get a better result? Had it been 10 to 2 for conviction? Sure. I think that's right. Had it been you know, maybe seven to five for conviction, maybe. But if it was seven to five, eight to four, 10 to two yeah. for acquittal, and you had to retry it with the record now being completely saturated, I mean, another two days of the cross-examination of Andrew Young, I think they thought that they had made their point and moved on. So I always thought that if the government couldn't get a conviction at a trial, that should be it. Um, you shouldn't be able to retry. But I, I, I don't think anybody agrees with me on that, except other criminal defense lawyers. 
Right. And I would I would be slightly different than you. I mean, again, if there was one crazy person in an 11 to one vote for conviction, that person just believed that nobody should be convicted of crimes in America. I could see why the government should retry. If it's anything other than things like that, then I know it's not formally double jeopardy, but discretion should be the better part of valor. So I ask everybody this who wins a big trial like you did. I mean, do you go celebrate with your client? Do you, is there a big party or is it, you know, you got to get back to the office, get back to the next case and, and move on? Uh, certainly not the latter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this took a lot out of everybody, you know, emotionally, physically. Um, there was a lot of time spent. So immediately after, Again, remember the jurors were being inundated by the media and sure. whisked away in private jets to New York, which was funny. I didn't think it was funny at the time. But yeah. In retrospect, I think <laughs> right. it's funny. Um, the trial team, um, after we collected ourselves, went to, we were staying at whatever hotel, we went across to a restaurant, just us. Um, I don't think, you know, I don't eat very much or well during trials. So yeah. I think there was both. Something to eat, and should I say there was something to drink? <laughs> yes. And that went on for a little while. It's not always like that, David. I mean, this was a big case in terms of the uh, effort and emotion and stakes. I'll come back and give you one quick more anecdote in a second. And, um, and then later, um, I met with John at his house on the porch where we were rocking on his chairs with his best friend. And again, there would have been something to drink there from kind of a Southern point of view where he did utter that famous line that I said, you know, what you do and what I do for a living are two different professions. So there was a celebration, but the very next morning I was gone. Um, I had to come back. I didn't, I didn't want to stay. I'd been gone for a long time. I wanted to come back to the office, my family. Um, right. So I didn't stick around. And then I returned to meet with jurors sometime later. Um, one fun anecdote about how intense this was. Um, my then 10 year old daughter, uh, 11 year old daughter uh, came to see the closing argument. And she's something in her own right in many ways now, 19. And um, there was so much press. I mean, you know, there was a little cordoned off area where you walk up the steps of the courthouse, press to the left, press to the right, satellite trucks, microwave trucks. It was just crazy. And I don't know why she did this. She wasn't prompted by any of us. So one day, right at the same day of the end, she's walking up to the courthouse and she stops in the middle and turns to the media and says, please, no interviews today. <laughs> it continues to walk up. So we may be hearing from her on your show in the years coming up. You know, I, of- I sure hope so. What is she sounds uh, just like dad? Um, yeah, I, know, but- I, I love it. I love it. That's great. Um, and and what about what about John Edwards today? Is he practicing lawyer? What's he yes. doing? So, you know, John's political career was over, which is a shame, by the way. I mean, obviously, he has to pay the price of what he did and and people have the right to say you're done. But he was a unique public official in the era. People called him, you know, one of the only sort of white politicians in the South that still talked about the needs that now are being articulated so many years later about Mm -hmm. two Americas, as he called them, and about, you know, racial injustice and, and the economics as well as the legality. And he was a unique voice in that way. And there was a a loss when he was taken away. However, he made his bones as a trial lawyer and then he and his friend, David Kirby, and for a while, I think, and maybe still, at least in some fashion, his daughter started their firm where they started. And he had two kinds of practices, one continuing to be a plaintiff's lawyer for people that have been injured or abused, and then also to take cases that had something to do 
with the disparities in people's economic conditions. And that's what he does now. Abby, I just wanted to thank you. You know, this show is about trial lawyers and trying to speak uh, to trial lawyers and reinvigorate uh, trials because there's so few. And you are a true, true trial lawyer and warrior. And I just wanted to thank you for coming on and talking to me about this case. Well, David, you know, again, coming from you, that's very high praise. I'm flattered. Um, there might be somebody in your family, my family, and others who are listening that do what we do, who basically say, you know, it was inevitable that this is what we'd end up doing. We had no choice. This is what was in our soul and in our DNA. Part of that's true, uh, as we talked about, you know, how do you become what you guys do? Um, but in this case, I appreciate the opportunity. And I hope it was, you know, other than some war stories, there are some lessons here. And one of them is that I don't think the government should stretch criminal law to cover conduct that's not obviously criminal. I don't think my success in this case had as much to do with me as a bad theory by the prosecution. Second of all, you are going to live or die by the strength of your best witness. And that was here. And third is, you know, the system can right itself. You know, it's sloppy, it's inefficient, but in the end of the day, the right result occurred. Well, they need warriors like you to fight that cause and you did it here. So thanks, Abby, I appreciate it. Thanks, David. Good being here. What an incredible result, an amazing trial from an amazing lawyer, Abby Lowell. Thank you for those stories, Abby. I think hearing those war stories are incredible. And one of the reasons I do this podcast is because I love hearing them and I love telling those war stories. Next week, we have David Gerger talking about the story of the BP explosion trial, one of the biggest environmental disaster trials we've had. And David Gerger represented one of the charged defendants, Robert Kaluza. So looking forward to that next week on For the Defense. If you all are enjoying the podcast, I would ask you if you could to please subscribe and to please leave comments. It really helps get the word out there for this podcast. And I'd like to do that. So thanks again for listening. I'll see you all next week on For the Defense.